Welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Dorian Linsky. Wrecking Ball MP Lee Anderson has thrown the Tories into chaos, or at least a different kind of chaos. We'll discuss the party's Islamophobia problem, pressure on the right from reform, and whether the One Nation Tories have a serious plan to save the party from going the way of the MAGA Republicans. Plus, it's a But Your Email special in the second half. We answer your burning political questions. And in the extra bit for supporters, political marches can be strange and chaotic alliances with people you don't always want to be walking alongside. The panel will discuss their own protest experiences. Let's meet the panel. First up, comedian Matt Green, currently on tour across the length and breadth of this sceptred aisle. Hi, Matt. Hello. How's England treating you? Uh, very nice. And Scotland too, and Wales. They've all been very nice so far. And it has actually been really lovely. I've met quite a lot of, um, oh God, what now, um, supporters and fans on, on the road as well. It's been really nice. Lovely. Once again, you see that I managed to admit Scotland and Wales to the uh, <laughs> aggravation of our listeners. Um, the post office inquiry continues to generate heat. What have the latest witnesses revealed? I mean, it was quite an interesting and fairly revealing um, sort of evidence session yesterday. Henry Staunton, the former chair, stood by his claims that the government tried to slow down compensation. Uh, but that was almost the least of it. There was a whole bunch of other revelations which made, made the committee hearing Several members of the committee were saying things like, that's blown my mind, which is something you don't often hear, I think, in a That's really committee. good. That's more like if you're like a TikToker or whatever. You yeah. know what I mean? Like exaggerated surprise. Yeah, it was quite funny. Um, so, yeah, Henry Staunton uh, revealed that Nick Reed, who's the CEO of the post office, has been since 2019, is under internal investigation. He said that this investigation was the investigation that Kemi Badnock was talking about in relation to Henry Staunton leaving. So that was a bit confusing. He said that Reed threatened to resign over his pay deal, which is over £400,000 a year plus perks, which seemed to completely con contradict his own evidence earlier when he denied he'd ever threatened to resign. Nick Wallace, the journalist who wrote the great post office scandal book, tweeted that this was the most important committee hearing on the scandal since 2015 and that the whole thing was, quote, madness. <laughs> so it's worth looking back at. Um, and Alan Bates, obviously, who's the star, uh, as it were, of the, the TV show, um, said earlier in the day that he... He was basically very frustrated that the thing was taking far too long. He made it clear that it was a redress scheme. It wasn't a compensation scheme because this was money that they absolutely were owed. It wasn't a question of the government deciding to help them. It's like, mm -hmm. no, they are owed this money. It is, it is their money. And he described the post office as, quote, a dead duck that should be sold to Amazon for a pound. Which does raise the question of whether you'd have to subscribe to Amazon Prime to guarantee being able to pick up a parcel. Now, I do respect Alan Bates, but I'm not sure about his economic ideas there. <laughs> I think that we might need to run that through the committee process, perhaps see what the Lords have to say. See what Netflix thinks. Yeah. You know. <laughs> Open it up to, uh, yeah. to all Disney Plus. Yeah. Next, we have Guardian columnist, author and podcaster, Raphael Baer. Hi, Raph. Hi, Dorian. When they're not voicing half-hearted disapproval of racism, the Tories are allegedly running the country. Uh, Jeremy Hunt has been dropping teasers about March's budget, which the IFS has called dubious and lacks credibility. Uh, what's he saying? Well, look, essentially the Conservative Party has, you know, in terms of fiscal policy, coalesced around the sort of fetish for tax cuts. And they've sort of attached themselves to this idea that the only thing that can save them and the economy uh, would be cutting taxes. And Jeremy Hunt is under pressure, obviously, to deliver something in that area. So, you know, it depends who you ask or depends what you read on a particular day of the week. Uh, a bit of inheritance tax cuts, a bit of national insurance uh, cut for employers. And, well, there's two elements to this, aren't there? One is a sort of a macroeconomic argument that only by cutting taxes will you stimulate growth and that's what will save us from uh, stagnation and economic ruin. And, and yeah, that's a very old argument. The evidence would suggest that's not actually what the country needs. 
I think the, the broader peculiar issue here is that actually the Conservatives know that they are going to lose the next election. And so their definition of, of success is damage limitation. And so anything that you might try and give people a little bit of feel-good factor in the run-up to election might just save a few seats. And then the question of what happens after an election, which is there will be no money, all the budget projections on which you are allowing yourself tax cuts are, are founded on a notion of spending cuts baked into the next parliament, which will simply never happen. I mean, it would involve sort of basically abolishing most public services as we know them. It's a total delusion and a fantasy, this idea of fiscal headroom. But they all know that's Labour's problem. And yet they are pretending by saying this thing is Labour's problem. And But also the test for credibility of Labour as a party of government is if they stick with our weird fantasy of what labor i mean the whole thing is is so sort of tangled up in weird tory fantasy lands that I, it almost shouldn't be dignified with serious discussion but then i just wanged on about it for 2 minutes well um <laughs> my wife was complaining the other day about uh, one or other aspect of the broken public realm and i did have this sort of moment of clarity and i just thought like the one thing that i would do if i was labor prime minister to, i've made no effort to become one <laughs> um but if i were um i think Actually, just making things feel like they're working again is the job. Absolutely. Like that, that is the top job. And so, of course, you know, that, that, which is why I get very frustrated with Rachel Reeves going, oh, well, we haven't got any money or whatever. And, and so this thing makes me particularly angry because that, that is what is causing so much uh, anger and frustration, disillusionment in the country. Of course, that fosters anti-immigrant sentiment and the sheer cynicism of going, but what if even less money for public services? Mm. Well, the interesting thing, if you talk to Labour MPs who are all at the moment very loyal to Keir Starmer, and if you raise this question of like, if only he could just be a little bit more dynamic and charismatic and win some of these arguments, actually win an argument in the in public about the fact that what we really need is to invest in the future, that's going to involve some spending, it's going to involve some borrowing, and it's going to involve some taxing. And that's mm. the only way we reconstruct the country. Why doesn't he do it? You know, they sort of cavil and squirm and they say, well, you know, the waters we swim in, the, the the environment we're trying to deal with has been so framed, the whole debate has been so set up. All of British politics is kind of an away fixture. And until we've won, we don't get yeah. to make that argument. I, I do think you know, that there is a, a, a wider problem here, which is that it can be simultaneously true that the tax burden is at historically quite high levels for the UK, um, not by European standards, uh, and also we need much more public spending and probably to borrow more and higher taxes. So, you know, those things can be true at the same time. And that goes back, I mean, decades, generations. I mean, that's a function of having, you know, blown all the North Sea oil revenue. That's a function of having blown all the sort of proceeds of privatisation. It's not just something that's happened in the last couple of years. That's the argument you want Keir Starmer to start winning, to say, look, this mm. is, we are having to rebuild this country you know, over, you know, in the long haul. And unfortunately, it doesn't seem to be great. And Rachel Reeves doesn't seem to be great at changing that frame. And finally, Hannah Fern, who writes about social affairs for the likes of the Eye and the Observer. Hi, Hannah. Hello. Uh, the by-election from hell takes place in Rochdale on Thursday. Uh, later listeners will know the result already. Tell us about the final stage of the campaign. Did it get any uglier? It was yes. pretty bad about two weeks ago. It's, it's really bad. The last week 
really, it's a combination of both aggression and apathy, really, sort of all there is going on. Uh, I think Rishi Sunak really summed it up in Prime Minister's Questions on Wednesday, which when we're recording, basically saying three of the candidates on the ballot are former Labour members, two of which are anti-Semites. He's talking about Galloway and Ali there. Obviously, we must say they both deny that claim. Galloway, who is the front runner is standing for the Workers' Party of Great Britain. He is campaigning on the insane claim that this vote and his potential victory is being watched in Tel Aviv, of all places. Oh, it's going to be uh, the shot heard round the world, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> well, that's his his standpoint. Then Reform's campaign tactic, also ex-Labour, Simon Dandrick, is basically saying, I'm standing to stop Galloway. That's his entire campaign right. trail, which is in itself sort of understandable, although he's a despicable character and not somebody we would want to see. And obviously standing for reform, um, a party we do not want to see break through. I think highly likely they will come second. He has received, incidentally, death threats on the trail, racist death threats, um, he claims. They are death threats that do reference his being white, so I suppose you could say it's racist in that sense. Right. And a man has been arrested for uh, for attacking him. So, you know, the very chaotic scenes on the trail. But Greens have someone on the ballot they've entirely withdrawn from campaigning in the area. The Tories have let their candidate, Paul Ellison, go on holiday within the last week of the campaign. Um, and the really, really sad thing for me is that the Lib Dems are completely invisible. And they're the only party saying anything sensible at all on the trail. They're talking about the hard graft needed to repair the country and particularly the local area. They're talking exactly as you were just saying, Dorian, about um, the nature of public services, the broken public realm. They are speaking about this, but nobody is listening to them. They're entirely invisible. And this is an area where 28% of children are living in poverty. And that's the really depressing thing for me, that th this area needs, needs, is desperate, is crying out for a strong, serious candidate. And they don't have one. I can't think of a worse by-election campaign. No, it's embarrassing. It should embarrass us all that it's been allowed to descend into this complete farce. Suspended MP Lee Anderson has semi-apologised for claiming that London Mayor Sadiq Khan is in the pocket of Islamist extremists. We will get into the wording. Uh, but he has done his party a favour by distracting from Swella Braverman's claim that the entire country is in the pocket of Islamist extremists. Anti-Semitism on the left has been big news for years. Is it high time we paid the same attention to Islamophobia in the Tory party? And what does this racist ruckus tell us about the future of the Tories as Reform and One Nation MPs fight for the right? Raf, what did you make of Anderson's quasi, I'm not a racist, but apology in the Daily Express? Well, it's interesting, I suppose, that ultimately he felt he had to sort of clarify his comments to some extent. He wants to keep the door open to being admitted back into the Conservative Party. The, the distinction uh, he has tried to draw is between... You know, you know, all the, the clumsiness, the infelicity in language that he will own up to is you know, conflating um, the vast majority of Muslims, which he says... 99.9% are, are, are peaceful, law-abiding, good citizens. Uh, and he ought to have been clearer about you know, that he was only singling out the you know, 0.1%. He should have been clearer that his claim that the mayor of London yes. is in the pocket of 0.1% of Britain's and this Muslims. Is, and this is, I think, the, the, the crucial thing. And this is the bit that, n as yet, no conservative I have heard articulate the precise problem, which is this keyword control. It's the, the, what, what makes, you know, apart from the fact that it's all, you know, the, a lot of people will recognise generally a kind of a dog whistle tone where you're talking about a, a 
collective threat to society channeled through the person of, oh, guess what, the Muslim mayor of London, you know, who isn't a white man, you know. So it's not rocket science to think there's something, there's a bit of a bad smell around this, but particularly that the use of that word control, the sense that that Sadiq Khan is is a kind of Manchurian candidate, kind of sleeper cell, that he's a conduit for something other than what he appears to be. And and that element of it, for me, is what really gives it a, a quite an, a more aggressive, sinister edge. You know, the audience that he's speaking to is people who will look at Sadiq Khan and absolutely ignore his very good record on being a, a secular, ecumenical, quite you know, sensitive mayor of a complex multicultural city um, and Leanna Silva was speaking to an audience who will discount all of that because they will only see the fact that he's a Muslim and they will only see the colour of his skin and project onto that a load of assumptions about what he really believes and what he really represents. And that's both racist, I think, mm. uh, but it's also, it's a particular kind of, of paranoid prejudice that gets into conspiracy theory. And that's a, a much more, that's a sort of exquisitely aggressive kind of prejudice. Well, I it's think. like the idea that Starmer is a, is a sort of Zionist puppet, and you can disagree with his, whatever, his position on, on, on Israel and Gaza, but it's that particular language of you are being controlled by foreigners. And this is where I think, you know, Islamophobia, I mean, it is quite a contested term, uh, and you know there are you know, I've heard criticisms of it that say well it doesn't really describe something coherent enough or it's used as a as a blanket term to to sort of shut down legitimate debate about the fact that there are you know fanatical radical Islamists who believe things that you wouldn't necessarily want enacted in government in a democracy. Um, but actually, you get exactly the same symmetrical argument when people say oh well you're just brandishing around the term anti-Semitism to stop people doing legitimate criticism of Israel, and then all these things get conflated. And actually, you know, Islamophobia I think is actually quite a useful term because what you're zeroing in on is not quite the same as it's not a racism in the sense that there aren't that many people who believe racist things or will uh, profess racist opinions in a kind of 1930s eugenic racial hierarchies of superiority. You know, there are white supremacists, but they're actually a really tiny number. Even um, in the Tory party. Even, <laughs> <laughs> whereas there is a much wider perception that there's something cultural about Islam uh, as, a, as a belief and a culture and a faith that makes it just sort of immiscible with Western democracy. That's a very particular kind of prejudice. And I think that's where mm. I find Islamophobia quite a useful word because that's what they're really inferring. Well, let's look at the word, um, Hannah. Uh, Leanson calls it a fear of Islam and insists he's not scared of Islam. Much as I remember many years ago, homophobes would go, but I'm not scared of gay people. Mm. I just don't like them. Um, that's not actually, you know, what it means. Kemi Badenoch thinks it would let in a blasphemy law by the back door and prefers the term anti-Muslim prejudice. Although, to my knowledge, no uh, Tory MP uh, interviewed on television has even used the word, the phrase anti-Muslim prejudice. No. They don't want to talk oh, about that. I think I heard one, actually. Right. on the, But uh, it's interesting because Islamophobia, I think we all have a general understanding of what it means. Clearly, all of us have come to this table today understanding what it means. You don't need a rigid definition. And like, you know, the government hasn't, hasn't got a formal definition and the, uh, and, and the government and the current cabinet are now playing on that. They love that because they, well, they, they can stand up and say these ridiculous things like like competing definitions and I wonder sometimes whether Muslimophobia would be, would be a, like a clearer word because there's different definitions and one definition says prejudice against Islam, the religion, and one says prejudice against Muslims. Yeah. Which is quite a different thing because anti-Semitism is seen as a prejudice against Jews, not against Judaism. Mm. Um, I think they're trying to conflate 
because of their obsession with freedom of speech, the, the difference between criticizing Islamism or, or Islam as a practice and individuals. But actually, it's, it's possible to have legitimate debate about all manner of issues without becoming prejudiced, without um, resorting to these assumptions and these dog whistles. And so I think Islamophobia is a perfectly okay word. And I think it's also absolutely right to be able to say that what we heard Lee Anderson say is an example of Islamophobia. There's so much disingenuousness in precisely this debate because the reality is, as exactly as you just said, it's possible to articulate subtleties around these issues. And you can sometimes get the words a bit wrong or misspeak or, or, or not express yeah. yourself perfectly. But no one for a moment thinks that Lee Anderson or Wensuela Braverman writes a piece in The Telegraph saying that Keir Starmer you know, is in hock to Islamists and that they have bullied the entire country, mm. that no one thinks for a second that she was carefully choosing those words. Right. So it's such a willful refusal to do exactly the diligence on language that actually anyone who pauses for a moment to think, I'm trying not to stir hatred, I'm trying not to benefit from polarization. I'm trying not to basically fuel my own political engine on a bit of vitriol here. They they would they would take that, make that effort. Yeah, and, so, and I think importantly, that's most of the country as well. I think this is where the majority of the population is far divorced from this insane oh. rhetoric that you hear going on at the moment in Westminster. I just don't know why they're so scared of using where do you think they're so scared of using the word? Because obviously Rishi Sunak said it was wrong. Catherine Fletcher, I think, won the prize for calling Lee Anderson <laughs> a Wally. Um, and nobody seemed to want to say Islamophobic or racist. It was very much like, yeah. uh, I think in Raf's piece in The Guardian, you know, that, that classic euphemism, like, uh, not the words I would have chosen. And it's like, well, you know, why, particularly when we're talking about like the One Nation lot, who clearly don't like Lee Anderson mm. and don't want the party to go his way. Why aren't there more people coming out? You know, it's poor old, you know, Baroness Barcy going out there almost always, on her own. On her own, always, single-handedly. And it's like, just, just say it. There was a very confused interview with Paul Scully on the news agency the other day where he came out because he'd said no go areas. That was the thing yeah. that people had jumped on. And he'd said, and it was, I found the interview genuinely confusing to listen to because I couldn't, even by the end of it, I couldn't, and I think the interviews couldn't work out either quite what he was trying to say because he was trying to say, I think, I didn't mean no go areas in a conspiratorial way. That's, that's, I didn't realize that was used in a conspiratorial way. I simply meant there are some areas that people wouldn't want to go. So it's like, okay, but it's still sort of saying the same thing. He cycled through 360 degrees. Yeah. He seems to apologize and, apolo and, and work himself <laughs> through the apology <laughs> in such detail that he'd accidentally, in a labyrinth of his own words, ended up facing the same way he started. Yeah. And he kept saying, well, look, Lee Anderson, I was what I was trying to do was take the heat out of the situation by saying, we've got to talk about these things because these things are really important. And they go, but what things are important? <laughs> yeah. But the thing. No, they, they I mean, that, we've got to have an honest conversation yeah. we need about, a debate. about what. <laughs> yeah. But the reason they won't bring up the word Islamophobia, I think, is, uh, is down to pure PR, that the more they parrot the word, the more it becomes attached to them. So they're just trying well, to like backtrack from the word as far as they can, well, even if in their hearts, some of the One Nation lot do genuinely think this is an example of Well, let's attach it to them. Um, a 2021 survey found that 58% of Tory members believed there were no-go areas of British cities where Muslims enforced Sharia law and drove out non-Muslims. 47% said Islam was a threat to the British way of life. Two dozen sitting or former Tory councillors have been exposed for Islamophobic and racist posts. Last summer, the Muslim Council of Britain said Islamophobia in the party was institutional, tolerated by the leadership and seen as acceptable by great swathes of the party membership. There's not been an EHRC investigation. Mm. Um, 
Matt, why is this not as big a scandal as Labour anti-Semitism? To me, you cannot fight one without the other. They are two sides of the same very dirty coin. Well, I mean, I think it obviously is a massive um, problem and it's got worse. There's a hope, not hate poll that's just come out today uh, when we're speaking on Wednesday saying that, in fact, those numbers have got even worse. So um, 58% of people uh, in the Tory party in this poll think that Islam is a threat to the to, to the British way of life, while only 18% believe the two are compatible. Uh, and also, I think mo- most importantly, Tory party members are far more extreme than the general public, that compared to 58% of Tory party members who think Islam is a threat of, uh, to the way of British life, 30% of the UK public do. So it's basically double. Um, and I think that's the answer, is that the Tory party is very Islamophobic, basically. And even with the anti-Semitism issue in Labour, which is obviously massively controversial, I don't think anyone would ever have said over half of the Labour Party's membership is anti-Semitic. And so the idea that obviously the Tory party does have a huge problem with it, but it's almost like it's such a big problem that for them to kind of have a go at trying to solve it, I don't know how they do that because they have tried to solve it. There There have been reports, there was the Singh report a couple of years ago, which was actually seen as a bit of a whitewash, but it focused, it focused on the party processes rather than the sort of wider issues. But it said there were various recommendations. One of the recommendations was people in local Tory party um, groups have to do training on this. And I think it goes back to them saying, well, I don't really want to. You know? I think a big difference just in terms of the way Westminster functions and the way politics operates, and it's not a criticism, it's quite normal. That the, the key difference is that with Labour, the reason everyone started talking about anti-Semitism and the problems and, and how widespread it was, was because Jeremy Corbyn was the leader of the Labour Party. And, and, you know, people will have different views on how much culpability he has to bear for that. My own view is that at the very least, the way he handled it, some of the language he used, gave a huge amount of permission to an awful lot of people who mm-hmm. were absolutely itching to say all sorts of paranoid things about Jews, you know, some under the cover of anti-Zionism, in quotes, and some just because they didn't really like Jews. Um, his leadership you know, became a magnet for some of that stuff. But he was the leader of the party. Now, Rishi Sunak is a very different proposition as a leader of the Conservative Party. I mean, the, you know, the reality is you know, he is the first non-white leader of a British political party and prime minister. I mean, and so the, the question, you know, in the macro picture, if you're saying the Conservative Party has a big problem with racism, which I think it does... It, it, it's much harder to attach it to the leadership and that changes the way that the issue is debated. And and I think, and that's absolutely right, it's, it's actually a grassroots thing where it's much more prevalent. Before we get into the politics, I just wanted to ask you, Raf, Anderson says he was attacking, you know, Islamists. Now, we will all remember that there are periods where there were um, bombings, like 7-7. There were murders. Um, you know, David Amos MP and... Lee Rigby and so on. There were definitely times where Islamist extremism, there seemed to be a reason to be talking about it. Suddenly there's all this talk about Islamism and the failure of multiculturalism and the collapse in social cohesion. What reality basis is there for that beyond, um, beyond prejudice? Is it just the politics of Gaza? Yeah, it's a good question because I think, you know, that point that you make that you know, we're back to having a conversation about you know whether Muslim communities generally are incubating a particular kind of radicalism that is a particular kind of threat to British society. Actually, that's a conversation that has been had at least since 9-11. 
um, on and off. But actually, the same pattern of the conversation was had, you know, going back to Enoch Powell, I mean, with a different community in mind. So how do you disaggregate a pattern of anxious response to migration and migrant communities that people think aren't adequately integrated and a particular political moment, uh, you know. And what's interesting, as you say, is that I think there probably is a way of defining a particular kind of radical jihadi ideology that, you know, can capture the minds of you know, young, often second generation uh, Muslims in this country who feel alienated. I don't get any sense that there's a lot more of them now yeah. than there were six months ago or eight months ago. But you know, if we had a proper conversation about engines of radicalization, how that operates, how you intervene to stop radicalization, you know, well, that's the, the same could be said of radicalization. You know, the, the guy who killed Joe Cox was had self-radicalized um, by consuming far-right literature. I mean, you know, then people will respond saying, well, actually, there's far more of one than there is of the other. But ultimately... I don't, it comes back to this point that people can be careful with their language and they can articulate the problems in ways that don't seem designed to be willfully capitalizing on yeah. ignorance and, and deliberately tapping into the reservoirs of fear and anger to fuel their own political projects. It's possible to have those conversations. That's not the way British politics is set up. Uh, Hannah, let's talk about the Tory politics. Um, a really interesting piece in Politico asks, can anyone stop Britain's Tories going full Trump and speaks to some disgruntled One Nation MPs, uh, very few of whom have denounced uh, Lee Anderson. Do you get the impression that there is a serious fight back plan from that piece? Uh, no, but also <laughs> I think that I'm not entirely surprised by that because it isn't actually quite the right time for the serious fight back. They've, they've got to let it all unravel. And also where they're positioning, I think the party is is so in flux at the moment that it, I'm sure individual members who might have previously considered themselves part of a one nation grouping might not even know where they stand. Just as an example of that, one of the most purely one nation things I've seen said this week was actually a comment by Jacob Rees-Mogg on um, Shamima Begum and whether or not she should have been repatriated and tried here in the UK, which obviously, yes, I think she should. And I've written on that before, but it was quite staggering to me to find myself in quite crashingly loud agreement with Jacob Rees-Mogg, not a position I he just did that ever expected to, to be in. <laughs> I mean, it, it, well, it worked. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, it, but it is an important point that it did maybe pause for a moment this week and think, you know, that there are points of agreement between all of us. And the disgusting thing about the culture wars is that it drives a wedge between everybody. And this yeah. moment at which I could say, look, I fully agree with this man on this. And I disagree with him on about virtually every other thing he's ever stood up and said in public. But here we are in complete agreement. And so I think the Conservative Party, many of them, I think they don't know where they stand and who they ally to at the moment. And it's got to let itself all play out before any kind of fight back can One can line be... that really pulled me up short, this is quote the piece, I have no idea who the moderate candidate is, one current minister said. Penny Mordaunt is good and well-liked, but she's mad on the woke stuff, referring to Mordaunt's support for trans issues. And I was like, you're literally talking about saving your party from going full mm. Trump. And I don't think anybody would describe Penny Morden as woke. It's just that she's one of the few Tories who doesn't vocally dislike trans people. Mm. And I thought, do you, do, you, do you have any idea what, if you're ruling her out because of that, then you're an idiot. And also the interesting thing is the only thing they ever think of when they attach woke to her is the trans issue when actually she has been quite interesting on things like 
you know, um, race race issues in the UK, on uh, equal, equal opportunities, gender equal opportunities in terms of pay and things like that. She's talked about these things, but that's not what they've got in mind. So they're not even thinking about that comprehensively when they make a comment like that. Matt, one, one thing the piece made me think of was that most of the One Nation heavyweights you know, the household names in the sense that any MPs are, um, will remain as ousted by Johnson over Brexit and forced to make podcasts instead. <laughs> Did that, are we seeing the consequences of that? Did that fatally unbalance the Tories, removing your your Gorks and your Greaves and your mm. Stuarts? I mean, what a terrible punishment, being forced to make podcasts. That's, that's why this is that's the only reason what, I do it. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> I'm, forced to. I'm, I'm still working out my sentence. But um, yeah, it did, it did remind me of that um, that famous Yates quote about the best lack of conviction while the worst are full of passionate intensity. And and that that does feel like that really represents the Tory party at the moment. That the best, which of course doesn't mean good. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but, but, but the they le- are... As Yates said, the least bad the, lack of... The, the least annoying. Uh, uh, yeah, I... And I mean, and I think p- people like Rory Stewart are being very passionate on their podcasts, and they are they are making lots of points. But yeah, they're nowhere near power in a weird way. And I think, but it, it goes back to the fact that obviously UKIP and the Brexit Party have always had this sort of slightly parasitic relationship with the Tories, and they they have slowly they've kind of infiltrated and slowly dragged the Tories further and further into the the right. And that's what's happened. They've taken over the host. Well, yeah, Raph, I wanted to ask you about that because um, GB News, whose owner Paul Marshall has been endorsing extreme Islamophobia on Twitter, reports that GB News host Lee Anderson has been meeting with GB News host Richard Tice <laughs> about joining reform. And I mean, is that the key to Sunak? I mean, Sunak, you know, he did remove the whip, fair enough, but he's been a lot more sort of nervous about disciplining his MPs compared to, if you actually look at some of the stuff that, that Starmer has suspended MPs for, the, the the degree of anti-Semitism alleged is far, far smaller. And obviously, Swella Braverman and, and Liz Truss sail on in their crazy ships. So is, is it as simple as that, is that Sunak thinks, well, if I am too harsh on this, Anderson will give reform their first MP, the other freaks might join him and he's just basically too scared i think broadly yes and ultimately when you well what i understand from the way downing street is sort of wargaming the election threat that they have yeah there's a there are a bunch of people who are switching from the conservative straight to labor uh they're probably never coming back uh there's an awful lot of people who are saying they don't know what they're going to do. Most of those people who voted Conservative in 2019, when you look at what they believe, what they care about, the things that come up are immigration, their reform talking points. And so, you know, Richard Tice and reform are looking at those people and going, that's how we get from 10 to 15%. Um, that's how we really break through. And the Tories are thinking, if we can hold on to those people and bring them back, that's the difference between just losing the election and getting absolutely annihilated. So, look, no one ever got poor betting against the courage of the moderate wing of the Conservative Party. That's another <laughs> point. But, you know, also, you know, that 2019 election, when Farage stood a bunch of people down and gave Boris Johnson a much bigger majority, that was the moment. I don't know if you've seen, you remember the fly, um, you know, the, the Jeff Goldblum version where he sort of, you know, yeah, so he joined the fly joins him in the teleport machine. And then there's that scene where he kind of is trying to understand what's going on and he zeroes in on his own sort of DNA and then zooms back out again. And it's the fly. He's actually fused his own genetic material with the fly. That's what happened in that 2019 election. Mm. That was the point at which conservative DNA, ideological DNA, fused with the Brexit party and it became a different organisation to the one it was when David Cameron was leader. And I don't think there's any going back from that. Well, I did notice, just to wrap up, 
Um, I thought Starmer had a very good line in PMQs, go, these are not the Tories your parents voted for. Okay, we're going to move the show around slightly this week because we've got a big basket of but your emails. So we're going to do under the radar now. Hannah. Okay, so it's a housing one. Um, This month, the monthly spend on temporary accommodation in London reached 90 million a month. So that's a huge amount of your council tax, a huge amount of public money going every month just in the capital, on housing people in emergency and temporary accommodation because we have such an epic housing crisis. Um, I think if that figure doesn't kind of sharpen minds, then, you know, where are we as we head into the the next government? Matt? So this is about medication. There's been a massive shortage of medication specifically for ADHD, huge UK-wide shortage for many, many months now, and it just keeps getting worse, basically. The charity ADHD UK said it's recorded a significant decline in the availability of medicines with only 11% of people with ADHD having their normal prescription in January, a drop from 52% in September. Currently, around 150,000 people are experiencing issues with medication. It's all to do with global factors, um, higher demand, manufacturing issues, and it could be several weeks, if not months, before it's resolved. And it does mean that there are people suffering with ADHD, often people who've maybe only recently been diagnosed, who maybe found it as a sort of lifeline and it's been taken away. And sadly, it feels like that's going to be something that could happen more and more with more medicines over over various various different um, conditions. It's not Brexit related directly, but Brexit is certainly not going to help in the future with other medicines because the EU is very much going to try and get as many of those medicines as it can. And we're going to be left on the outside. So yeah, it's been it's been a problem that's been kind of slowly getting worse and worse. And unfortunately, it doesn't look like it's going to be resolved anytime soon. Uh, Raf? Uh, so there's a very good organisation uh, called the Local Government Information Unit, which is a really nerdy thing. You know, I mean, we talk about going stories that go onto the radar, but the whole of local government, local politics always massively goes onto the radar because we have such a centralised country and Westminster politics dominates everything. But um the scale of the financial crisis, just slow motion wreck unfolding in local government is extraordinary. And they've published, so the uh, LGIU have published a report. Uh, and among many harrowing things, what they find is that um, they, they survey a lot of councillors and a lot of councils. And about one in 10 say they expect to have to trigger an, uh, a section 114 order. But it's the mechanism by which the council goes we're broke because councils are legally obliged to balance their budgets. So if they if they can't uh, and, and they're effectively bankrupt, they have to use this um, section 114 of the Local Government Act. So one in 10 think probably this year and about half, 50%, probably in the next five years. So that is, you know, if you just think most people's actual experience of what the state is, yeah. what government is, yeah. is actually local. It's, you know, the, mm. the state of the streets is like driving through the potholes. It's whether your bins got collected. Mm. And so actually the point at which you just aren't delivering basic services at local level and it's just falling apart actually has a corrosive effect on the whole of the democracy. It just delegitimizes the whole idea of what politics can do and what government can do. And I'm sure that's an engine of 
all the turbulence, all the radicalization, all the polarization that we've had. And then that is all properly happening under the radar. Fortunately, tax cuts will, tax cuts will help councils grow. <laughs> Our two stories are directly related, though, because one of the primary drivers of bankrupting councils is cost of temporary accommodation. Uh, well, mine is about uh, American politics. Um, I get driven mad by the framing of the primaries um, that... If you look at the New York Times or even the Guardian, it was kind of like, you know, again, like Trump romps to victory over Nikki Haley in Michigan, while Biden faces stiff opposition from uh, people who are very angry about his his Gaza policy. In fact, uh, Rashida Tlaib, Congresswoman, you know, tried to get people to vote uncommitted, which is almost like a protest vote. Um, that underperformed, got to about 13%. Uh, which is not that much higher than the number of uncommitted for Obama in 2012 at a much less fractious time. So Biden sort of overperformed the predictions. Trump underperformed. Um, and in fact, as someone pointed out, if you look at the polls, he underperformed in Iowa by 20 points, Michigan by 20 points, New Hampshire and South Carolina by about 10 points. So the story that I'm seeing is that that there are far more Republicans who don't want Trump than there are Democrats who don't want Biden. And I think perhaps the reason for the bizarre framing is the traditional idea that if you're in opposition, the primaries are almost always more contested. And if you're the incumbent president, you're expected to just like walk it. But Trump is the Republican incumbent. Mm. He is the former president. He has always been the front runner. And I just feel that there should be more recognition that he is actually getting fewer votes than you would expect and as the polls predicted mm -hmm. and that these attempts to kind of challenge Biden and there were some third party candidates as well who got like 3% each are falling short and I think perhaps this framing has contributed to the, 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 the sort of I think excessive gloom over the um, next election. Now, our inbox has been deluged with questions from Patreon backers, and we can normally only answer one a week. So we've decided to devote the second half of the show to a But Your Emails special. Let's dig in. Melissa Bransberg asks, now that he's 16 months into the job, what is Rishi Sunak's motivation? Politicians are generally motivated by service, power or greed, but none of those qualities seem to fit. None of his plans are really particularly unique or bold. Stopping boats, banning vapes, adding more maths. He doesn't need speaking circuit money. His ideology seems to be malleable. Why is he there? I mean, this is, Raph, this is a great question, right? Yeah, I'm fascinated by this. I think it's such a great question. And, uh, you know, I've, I think, uh, for first of all, in terms of what he believes, that's important because I don't think it's quite true that he believes nothing at all. I don't, I, you know, I, he is a sort of an incarnation of the leader page of the Spectator magazine. It's a sort of a set of <laughs> sort of, I mean, very, this is going to sound really snobbish, but a kind of slightly lazy, upper middle brow, radical, conservative Thatcherism long after Thatcher stopped being interesting or relevant, you know, and, and that is what's fascinating about that is that given how young he is relatively, that's quite a weird set of beliefs to have. You know, he's younger than me uh, and I think I'm not that old. So, you know, he's always in mid 40s. You know, demographically, I mean, there aren't that really that many people voting Tory who have those views in that segment. Um I think so. I think it's something quite unimaginative about his politics, and in terms of why he does it, in that sense, I think he's very similar to David Cameron. They've had that very elite education. Uh, Rishi Sunak was head boy at Winchester, uh, and I think once you've sort of been groomed in that environment and you made lots of money, there is a sense of well, politics 
is quite a cool thing to do. It's kind of quite a genuinely interesting thing to do. So if you could, if you have the education and the grooming and the training to do prime minister and it's available to you, why would you not? I mean, that would be an awesome job to do. And probably you think you'd be quite good at it. That's, but that's what Cameron said. said. Yeah. I wonder if it's the same thing. Oh, I, think oh, I be don't quite know. Good I kind it. of both not, agree though. and disagree with you because I do agree with everything you're saying about his kind of background, that schooling and kind of environment that made him. But I think it's less a kind of, oh, this is a cool thing to do, maybe I'll give it a go. And more of a sense of sort of obligation, like this is something I should do. I've been head boy, I've gone on to Oxford, this is the next thing, this is this is what I ought to do. You know, I've recently written a profile for, uh, uh, for a piece coming up for the election about him and read uh, a recent biography that apparently there was someone in his obviously private primary school who had described him as being a future PM then. So it's like this kind of, oh, maybe that's what I ought to do, implanted at what the earliest stage. What kind of do you have to be for someone to think you're a future PM in primary <laughs> I know, school? I thought that. It really stepped out at me. Now, when look, I kind of have some sympathy for this because school I grew up in, very, very different. Um, but there was this Your sense that I ought, to, <laughs> <laughs> I ought to get to university because I was clever enough and I then I ought to get a job and have a stable life and get the hell out of Didcot. And I suspect he's ex exactly, he's about a year older than me, he's in exactly the same position. I do find it fascinating that he radiates resentment at how hard it is <laughs> yeah, yeah, and how that. little gratitude he's getting. I, for it. I mean, he just finds it so hard to conceal the fact that this turns out to be way less fun, way harder with way less gratitude yeah. than he was led to believe and he's not very good at sort of just sucking it up well, like I mean, you're the prime minister mate just yeah deal with if, it. if you're head boy you, you're used to being you're used to people praising you you know that's the that's, and you don't have to do much as head boy yeah but, but also I think you I know mean, head boy to the budget or something he, he's, he's, pro he's come from a world where you do a good job you get praised you do a better job you get praised and, that, and then politics just isn't that politics is the exact opposite of that there'll always be someone else who makes a mistake that you then have to defend and so yeah I, I, I agree I think he does seem but I think he's probably just I think now it's just inertia, isn't it? It's like it's more, it'd be more hassle to not have the job than it would be to have the job. Can you imagine, like, it, it would cause so much faff and he would have to kind of go out and do it, do a press conference and all of his mates would hate him because they're all going to lose their jobs. Like, he's now stuck, I think. Uh, Tom Williams asks, if it was Jeremy Corbyn's Labour who were in opposition whilst the Tories are doing their current death spiral, what do you think the polls would look like? I think it's a really good question. It's a very good question. And I was trying to think about this. It's, uh, I think it divides people. Yeah. I mean, I suppose the closest we have to that as a, a sort of historical precedent would be the kind of chaos of um, Theresa May's Brexit years, where the Tories were polling pretty badly and it was all chaos. And then it was an incredibly bad election campaign that she ran and therefore they lost. But still, Labour didn't win. And... They did a lot better than people were expecting. So I suspect it would just be a lot closer. I think I think maybe Labour would just about have a bit of a lead. I think Corbyn would obviously still have all the issues that he had in terms of the press would be attacking him all, about all sorts of things. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I can't see them with a 20-point lead, as they currently do. But I think they would they would have a bit of a lead. But, yeah, the election campaign would be pretty bloody. I think one of the things that I uh, argued with Corbynites about was, was the fact that Corbyn was very popular with the people who liked him. They loved him. And yet the people that he alienated were people who were just like, I don't really like the Tories, but not you. Mm. Um, and Starmer doesn't really have that. There aren't that many people who are just like, oh, I couldn't countenance that. Mm. So they're much happier to switch to Labour or to vote for the Lib Dems and, you know, and therefore help Labour in. 
So, I, I mean, I, yeah, I agree. I don't know whether... I still feel like this Tory party stinks so badly of death that I still <laughs> think a Corbyn-led Labour would probably win. I think it would be much more fragmented. If you remember that 2019 European parliamentary election where the, the Tories mm. came fifth, yeah. you know, <laughs> they came fifth. Uh, uh, and, you know, one of the things that actually surprised me is the resilience of the two-party system in England, actually, how despite all the fractiousness and the fragmentation of 2016 yeah. to 2020, it sort of pings back to just basically Labour Tory camps. I think if you still had Jeremy Corbyn leading Labour Party, yeah, that would have been so hard to maintain. I mean, obviously there was attempted splits in Labour and it failed. Change UK. Change UK, all that stuff. But <laughs> I just think there would be something else, other things polling in the 1520 zone and the party system would look, the two-party system would look really shaky. I think the one thing that we can say is that turnout would be so low mm. that it would be a real depressing moment for parliamentary democracy because you just look around and say, well, somebody's won, but it doesn't represent anywhere near the majority of the people. Tom Pegg asks, Twixter, very clever, appears to have become a horrible, seething cesspit of extremism, more so than ever before, yet it still seems to be where news folk hang out and where the news goes for stories and quotes. Do the panel feel that relying on an increasingly extremist platform will impact on the slant of the news? And if they do, in what way? I mean, I can't speak for anyone else, but I would say the only reason I'm still on it is because that everywhere else on social media is either totally insipid or influencer-driven and just doesn't feel like a space for news. So it has retained its newsy sense, I suppose. But it doesn't do what it used to do. It's not as useful as it used to be as a journalist. Not at all. Um, It's irritating now. But I I think it's important to remember this is not where most people get their news from either. We can feel like we're in that world and it Mm. it can feel very essential. But most people are actually still getting it from Facebook. Uh, That's still globally the primary driver of social news. Um, Or places like TikTok, um, which I haven't experimented with at all, so I can't tell you anything about that. Um, So no, I don't actually think it will have any more impact than it already has. Yeah, I spend very little time on it now. I've sort of drifted away uh, just because it became so appalling and I despise Elon Musk. And my sense is it has become substantially less relevant. It does get quoted. So, you know, obviously, you know, Sola Braverman might, or whoever it might be, says something on, or actually more like Mm -hmm. Kemi Badenoch says something on X and therefore that gets quoted. But that's basically like issuing a press release. I think you've had a lot less of the the sort of iterative dynamics yeah. of the site generating their own stories in the way, if you remember what happened to, you know, Emily Thornberry with the, the tweeting the picture of the van, you know, the yeah. flags in whichever by-election it was, um, that, you know, was an entirely Twitter-generated news event. And actually, I think there's less of that now. Well, I think if the question is about are journalists going to be swayed and they think, oh, well, this is what people are thinking, I think... Because, you know, there are so many people with like Union Jacks in their bios and um, the blue ticks, and we all know what that means now. I think it's really clear that you feel like you're wading through trash. Um, You don't get the impression that like, oh, I guess this is what, I guess there are just a lot more fascists in Britain now. (laughs) It's not a zeitgeist wire. No, no, so I don't think, I think people are very, very conscious of the fact that the reason it has changed is not because the country or, you know, the world has changed, Mm. but because Elon Musk is in charge and he likes white supremacists. (laughs) Uh, And so I I don't worry that it will kind of, that it will skew the news. I think the news has bigger problems. Uh, yeah, it does. <laughs> <Isn't> that the truth. <laughs> it feels to me like it's become more of a broadcast medium now. That I still use it a lot to 
put my videos out, put my opinions out. Oh, I've but seen. I'm, I'm not. Le- I'm not interested <laughs> as much in what people are replying because, as you say, so much of it is either porn bots or blue tick weirdos how, or whatever. You know, I am. How much pussy and bio have you oh, received? So, so many, so many. I but, get that too. I don't even know what that means. No, nobody does. No one's ever clicked. But I think also for me with Twitter, like a few. Uh, I mean, a year or two ago, I just have become incredibly quick to block now. So my, my Twitter is very, I've just got thousands oh, yeah. and thousands of people I've blocked. And therefore my Twitter ha- doesn't feel that much different in a way. Like I just get rid of those people straight away. And it's sort of still a lot of my friends and people I it's know. It's just and, thinner, isn't it? Yeah. That's what I find it's, when yeah. I look. Yeah. It's just less of it because I've, that's, for the same reason, I've got high levels of digital media hygiene, mm. and but there's, there's less out there. But the problem is that compared to, I mean, I'm on threads and Blue Sky and all those places, but they all just feel much less Oh, I hate threads. It's so tedious. It's so worthy. God, I can't bear it. Yeah, it's basically the worst of Instagram and Twitter combined. (laughs) All someone needs to do is basically get like 2011 Twitter. Like that was the perfect social media platform pretty much. Yeah. Uh, Ian Holderbeck, this sounds like one for you, Hannah. What is it about the Liberal Democrats that fails to cut through to the general population? With the Tories polling so badly, why aren't more people considering the Lib Dems rather than Labour as the alternative? Is it all student loans, FPTP and lack of name recognition? Or is there something more fundamental about their policies? Where are all my fellow centrist dads hiding? That's oh, a real cry for hello, help. Hello, centrist dad. <laughs> I'm a centrist mum who actually comes from a centrist dad Lib Dem voting household. <laughs> wow. Although I haven't voted. Indeed, Lib- Secondary, which you basically made sound like Compton a minute ago. Uh, yeah. Well, Oxfordshire, isn't it? <laughs> um, I think it, the problem is Ed Davey, I'm sorry to say. I've known Ed Davey on and off for a while. He used to be housing minister, uh, housing spokesperson back in 2005 or something. I went on the stump with him for when I was writing about housing solely. And uh, he's a, he's a great guy. He's a really good bloke with oh, okay. really you know really solid, uh, serious political you know motivation and beliefs. He just lacks any ability to connect through all of the mediums that you need now: broadcast, social media. He's got no charisma. And the coalition, and they chose somebody with a coalition. Connection. Yeah, but you know we're so far away from that now. You know, Clegg's gone, Swinson's gone. I think that there, there would be an opportunity in the current environment for the right person to reinvigorate the Lib Dems, but it is not him. They've got so many other structural problems as well. So they can't just be more Romani than the Remainers because they actually need to win back seats. Just like Labour, got exactly the same problem as Labour on the Brexit thing. They actually, places they need to win, there are people who voted for Brexit who don't want to be reminded about what a toss idea it was. Um, there are an awful lot of lowercase LD liberal Democrats in other parties. You know, it's basically like some sort of like be a group of it's like it's like politics was drawn up by some colonial cartographer and the land that was liberal democrats was actually parceled out to other parties and then they say well actually we should have our own country called liberal democrats like well no they're everywhere else i mean you know if you were doing to rationalization of british politics you'd basically get dominic grieve and and you know david gork and the liberal right for conservative party smushed them together with most of the lib dems say right you're a kind of like a a center-right pro-business liberal party the lib Dems who actually hate that stuff. You go off and join the Labour Party. Some of you join the Greens. Uh, you know, other rest of the Tories go off with a, a reform and become a mad right wing nationalist party. And they're right, jobs good. But I also, I, I also want to know as a side point, like what is it about the Lib Dems that produces uh, people like Liz Truss and Paul Marshall, and just why there's so many absolute right wing lunatics <laughs> that have a past with the Lib Dems? Um, this is one for Matt. Hello. 
Uh, Sam Proctor, does the Right Honourable Sir Jeff Jeffrey, who's a character in Matt's stand-up show, belong to any of the five families? And if so, which one? <laughs> Good question. I think if he were here, he'd be like, well, I, I, of course, uh, is, is, uh, the Tory party is like a family in that we all hate each other. Um, and there are a number of groupings. Uh, I've been a member of different ones. Uh, obviously, there's the European Research Group, the Northern Research Group, the uh, Common Sense Group. Much <laughs> easier for them. They don't need to do any research. Um, just go with their guts which can be quite considerable. <laughs> you don't hear that <laughs> on the BBC. Uh, and, uh, but no, if I, if, I, if I had to stick to one particular family, I'd say I'm part of the Southern Gut Feelings Gang. Yeah. <laughs> I hang around my local Weatherspoons, have a couple of pints, see what people are saying, and put it on expenses. That's how it works. Nice. Um, Gervais Miller. Um, <laughs> suddenly it's gone very heavy. That was very funny. Now we're going heavy. <laughs> Why do parts of the Labour movement prefer to focus on international issues such as the Middle East and Yemen rather than domestic issues? The Labour left don't seem to like trying to persuade people by meeting them where they are mentally and therefore leave a void for the Tories to often fill. Okay, I'm going to start. I do think there is a thing, and I think it's sort of actually a, I think it's a Cold War thing. Like, I'm fascinated by the origins of um, sort of anti-Zionism as an idea that really starts in the 1970s, it's very much pushed by the, um, the Soviet Union. I'm not saying there was like a Soviet agent or something, but it very much became a part of the international left. And I think one of the reasons Corbyn actually got in so much trouble was because that was his obsession. And that most people... Well, rightly or wrongly, don't really care about foreign policy. And it's very uh, divisive and actively repellent to people who disagree with you on that. And so there are people who are very good at their jobs, like, say, Mick Lynch is a very good union leader. As soon as he starts talking about foreign policy, it's just the, the usual kind of nonsense. And, and there's a lot of people on the left who, you know, they're not great on Ukraine. And, you know, I might agree with them to some extent on Palestine, but they're really not great at framing it in a way that might um, speak to the unconverted. And it seems to be a sort of, it seems to be an, an addiction, maybe rooted in the old idea of kind of socialist internationalism, which is a you know, noble idea that you should care about countries all around the world. But it seems to get them so much more excited than the Green New Deal or how you're going to sort out council financing. And it gives you a kind of like a moral battleground where it's like, well, these are the evil people and these are the heroic rebels. And the problem is, if you think like that, you end up sort of going hooray for the Houthis or whatever. And, and politically, it always seems to me, I mean, people can be concerned about whatever they're concerned about. Politically, that always seems to me to be a disaster because most people don't care and you you run the risk of making people very angry and freaked out. There's also a very important, I think it's very interesting and, and true, uh, and the end of the Cold War is, is obviously hugely relevant to this because it's sort of a, a international Marxism as an organising principle for what the left was as about advancing a class proletarian interest you know, lost a lot of its agency because the Soviet Union collapsed. But also at the same time, you have, and you have the same thing in the US, this very important demographic shift where the sort of the intellectual uh, and, and just in terms of the vote, who the voters are, engines of the left stops being 
working class people in factories and starts being middle class people in universities. And so it's the, the humanities faculty of the university uh, in a city with young people uh, who are studying, you know, are interested in gender studies or post-imperialism or, you know, these all these questions, which are very interesting and there's lots of theorizing around it. Actually, that is not they don't necessarily have a whole lot in common with or able to articulate the politics that would once have been about you know, class representation of people in factories who didn't go to university. And a lot of those older, often white men who lost industrial jobs, uh, who used to traditionally vote Labour, actually, they're the profile of the red wall voters who are voting for things and agreeing with things that the current left doesn't actually like very much. Uh, finally, Simon Gates. With a counterfactual, since the 2007 financial crisis, the UK seems to have been on an inevitable path to where we are now. Was there a turning point when anyone could have done anything to avoid it? Gordon Brown going for the early election, Ed Balls having the guts to disagree with austerity, the Lib Dems in coalition or not helping Boris. What do you think? I'm going to give this a caveat that it is the illusion of history that you always think you've been on an inevitable path to where we are now. (laughs) And there is no such thing as inevitability. But sorry, Simon. But apart from that, <laughs> was that, you know, and, and then the question... Is question, there such a thing as free will? That's the question. Yeah. <laughs> That's for the extra bit. Um, <laughs> no, but I suppose his question obviously suggests that he doesn't think it was inevitable and that there were kind of mm. potential turning points. Um, Hannah? I mean, the very obvious one. I suppose it's going back very slightly before that, but is Miliband not standing against his brother, isn't it? That's the classic... And, you know, I say this at the time I was a member of the Fabian, so I had a vote. I've never been a member of the of Labour Party because I'm a journalist, so I don't believe I should be. But uh, I was a Fabian, so I had a vote and I voted for him. I, I, I voted for Ed Miliband too. I, I love Ed Miliband. I obviously think he's brilliant, but that was the turning point. OK. I don't right. think he's brilliant and I didn't vote for him. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. He had brilliant principles. He's a nice guy. Yeah, no, brilliant, guy. brilliant as in I like him. Guy, I wouldn't say yeah. like brilliant he as in like brilliant one of the great politicians of his age. Yeah, that yeah. was that's the problem. <laughs> uh, so I have two, one US, one British. US, the moment that Obama, um, after the financial crisis, brought all of the CEOs of all the big banking companies into a room. And apparently, I remember reading this somewhere, they genuinely thought they were about to be arrested. They genuinely thought, look, we fucked up bad here and he has all the reason in the world to, you know, say you are all in trouble. And instead he said, how can I help you? How can I help you? How can we get this system back on its feet by not rocking the boat? And I think that was a crucial, possibly the biggest turning point in a way of his um, presidency in some ways. Uh, And the other one, British one, a smaller one in a way, but also important, Theresa May's Mansion House speech when she put down her red lines on Brexit. And again, I remember reading something fascinating about that, which was because she won the um, Tory party leadership without a fight, because, I um, can't remember her name now, pulled out, what's her name? Andrew Ledson. Andrew Ledson, yes. Pulled out because of the thing she said about being a mother, um, that Theresa May was going to do that speech as a sort of campaign speech and throw out all these crazy ideas about, let's do a red line on this, red line on this. But then it became a prime ministerial speech and nobody had sort of really thought through what does that mean if you rule out being part of a uh, customs union, all that kind of stuff. And so she ended up putting much more pressure on the um, red lines than she intended to, perhaps, arguably. uh, And that meant that the whole Brexit debate sort of from the beginning was scuppered. That's very good. Raf. Yeah, I mean, it's the problem of the butterfly wings, isn't it? There are so many little things that you could... 
might attribute, who knows you know, if such and such a by-election hadn't happened, then would such and such a candidate have never run? I, I, what I'm more interested in is your actual, the sort of more philosophical point about, you know, what... How do you know when you've passed the point of no return? Like if you're Rishi Sunak now, I remember having this conversation or when Theresa May was in still prime minister. It's like you had to analyze and discuss politics as if it was possible there was a way out. But maybe, you know, to sorry to use the sort of Third Reich analogy, but, you know, maybe it's the Third Reich in 1944 and actually you have lost and there is literally nothing you can do except you have to pretend that you are still fighting. Mm. And maybe the Tories are, it is now over, but they have to act as if they have the agency. And I don't know if it's possible in the moment to know whether, oh, actually we have passed the point of no return then we should just put our feet up and accept it's over. Yeah, I mean, maybe I've just been reading too much recent history, but, you know, there's a book by Timothy Snyder where he makes a claim, which I'm not, it's a sort of quasi-conspiracy theory, I think, that, that kind of Russia intervened in Syria partly to drive out more Syrian refugees into Europe, which when, then caused this huge populist yeah. far-right backlash, you know, in many countries. Um and then you can go, well, well, that's Brexit. And that's why it's alternative for Germany is because... But then you're just like, well... And you couldn't have known that Angela Merkel would say, I'm going to make a right. massive liberal stand on this and say, come one, come all. I mean, how that was totally unpredictable. So the more that I think about history, the more it's just like, well, you, 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 you just cannot say what would have happened if this, if that, if that. Although um, I think you did some very good ones. <laughs> you did do some very good ones. So that's the show. Uh, we didn't get through all the questions, but we will save them and get through some more in the coming weeks. Thank you so much to Hannah. Thank you. Matt. Thank you. And Raf. Thank you. Stick around for the extra bit after Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. And a special thanks to all our Patreon backers, new and old. As I've said recently, it's a tricky old time for podcasts and we literally couldn't do this without you. You could join them and get the podcast early and without ads, plus lots more and uh, unending gratitude. Search Oh God What Now Patreon to find out how. We'll see you next time. Big thanks for digging deep and helping the pod to Joss Knight, Eva and Andrew Moriarty. Hello from me and many thanks for your generosity to Peter Lee, Paul Carter and Alan Murray. Thanks from me on behalf of the whole podcast team to Rick Miles, Ron Pierce and Mary Claire Tucker. Finally, a big thank you to M. Reese and welcome back to a couple of returning supporters, Lee Wallace and Rebecca MJ. Oh God, What Now? was written and presented by Dorian Linsky with Hannah Fern, Matt Green and Raphael Bear. The producer was me, Chris Jones, with audio production by Robin Lieburn and Jade Bailey. The group editor is Andrew Harrison and the managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. Art direction by Mark Taylor and James Parrott. Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the extra bit for Patreon backers. The Gaza marches, as we discussed, have been at the heart of the panic about extremism. Most protesters simply want a ceasefire and a plan for a Palestinian state. But there are always some people with more problematic agendas. Most marches I've been on and have had awkward encounters and dissonant moments. Placards I don't agree with, speakers I can't stand, and so on. So we're going to talk about our own experiences and the usefulness of marches in general. 
Hannah, only 18% of Britons apparently have ever been on a protest march. Hopefully you are one of them. Uh, I am, um, yes, I have. Have well. you ever had second thoughts where you felt slightly hijacked or complicit in uh, views that you don't agree with? Uh, yes. I mean, even so my first march was the 2003 anti-war march, which I went to the Manchester one. Um, and, you know, on that there were people shouting that kind of classic, hey, hey, ho, ho, Bush and Blair have got to go. And I was, you know, I was thinking, well, I actually don't want Blair to leave as prime minister. I just want him to just not do this. In fact, most of the other things he's doing, I'm pretty keen on. So- <laughs> that was a teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more, oh God, what now every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £3 a month. You'll also get our exclusive weekly minicast, Oh God, What Else, every Monday morning and some merchandise and you will be helping us out a great deal and we will love you. Thanks for listening and see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>